Tom, you know how we've been thinking about like big thinking? <laughs> yes. How big do you actually reckon you can think? You personally, Tom Previti, right now, how big do you actually think you can think? Well, I think, when I think big, <laughs> it actually scares me a little bit. Because I feel small, mm. personally. Okay, so if you close your eyes and imagine yourself in the room, right? And then you can imagine your body and you can imagine the room with your body in it. Then you can imagine the house with the room in it, with you in it. And then you can go out and out and see the city, the country, and then the world. How far out can you zoom? Oh, I'm zoomed out. I'm zoomed out. <laughs> yeah. It just, just keeps going, keeps going. And now I'm getting scared. Now I feel like I've zoomed out too much. Bring it back, bring it back. Deep breaths, you are in your body. Breathing it back in. Feel the ground beneath your feet. I'm back. Yeah. Ooh, that was Ooh, big. Wow, that was powerful. <laughs> I think we just had a moment. And welcome back to the Carbon Removal Show. Yes, welcome back, listeners. I'm Tom Praviti. And I'm Emily Swaddle. This season, we've been talking about the scale-up of the carbon removal industry, what it might look like and what it might take to get to where we need to be. Indeed. And in today's episode, we're shifting the lens from an industry-wide perspective to hone in on one company's view. While industry trends and big picture strategies are important, today we're asking how individual companies can navigate and contribute to the scale-up. After all, individual companies and the people who run them will ultimately be the innovators that drive the industry forward and ensure that their companies can meet the ever-changing demands of external factors such as policy and market demand and so on. Particularly companies that actually deliver carbon removal. How can they innovate in such a way that supports scaling up both for themselves and for the wider industry? Yeah, this is such an interesting take. I think my head has been so focused on the whole industry growing that I kind of forgot that it actually means individual companies. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, because you tend to spend a lot of time thinking in that macro space. Mm. And we've been talking somewhat abstractly about getting to gigaton scale, but our guest today from MASHMAKES introduced us to their idea of gigaton thinking. Indeed. Very cool. And MASHMAKES are generously supporting this episode, so thank you very much, MASHMAKES. All right, I'm ready to think big. Let's get into it. So... Mash makes. Mash makes. Great name, by the way. It is a great name. It's a memorable name. And it's pretty appropriate because their technology is designed to make a lot of things. Biofuel, hydrogen, electricity, and of course, carbon removal credits. And a particular interest to us today, mash makes make biochar from agricultural and agro-processing residues. And if you didn't know what that means, do check out season one, episode four of the Carbon Removal Show. Yes. Anyway, their input is low-value biomass, and that waste stream is saved from incineration. Circularity meets CDR. I'm liking this already. Let's let Jacob Anderson, CEO of MASHMAKES, tell us more about how they got started. We're a technology spin-out from the Technical University of Denmark. And they are very, very good at this area called thermochemistry. So that's stuff like pyrolysis, which the listeners of this podcast will know very well, but also similar technology. Another one is called thermogasification. So we use that as well. And the really sort of neat trick there, the really nice thing about this technology platform that we have access to is that it allows us to hit 
many different commodity targets, both in terms of existing commodities, so stuff like energy products, that could be electricity, but also right now, near term, it's biofuels, but also it'll allow us to hit some of these emerging commodities like biochar and also very interestingly, carbon removals. They really are just taking this tech and running with it and creating a pretty diverse portfolio for themselves. And it's clear that Jacob and Mashmakes see these as co-products, the biochar, the carbon removal, and ultimately the biofuels and the electricity, which in a young and very changeable market seems like a wise path to take. All of these different venues that we have, that's a diversification. That also means that we are more resilient in terms of market changes. I suppose we are a little bit less worried if the permanence of biochar is landing here or here or here. You know, we can still make ends meet in one way or another, even at lower carbon prices, right? So that, of course, is uh, an attractive feature of, of being diversified. This product mix obviously makes them more agile and able to respond to market needs. Currently, the focus is on biochar and carbon removal, but they also see biofuels as a major opportunity. An interesting point here made by Jacob is regarding their business focus. Research on biochar durability, as we discussed in our Year in Review 2023 episode, shows good results, but for MASHMAKES, it's less mission critical from a business perspective. Having fingers in all these pies is only one of the things that makes MASHMAKES interesting. They also have a strong focus on R&D, as I think is evident when we take a look at their pyrolysis machines. Designed in-house and MASHMAKES owns all the IP, their machines are modular to facilitate ease of maintenance, updates and repairs, and designed to fit into a storage container for easy transportation. Then their machines can be deployed at their destination using local biomass resources or waste streams. And this, I think, also speaks to another characteristic of the MASHMAKES philosophy, their international outlook. I think what makes the company interesting is that we sort of take that out of the Danish context and we try to figure out how this actually can be made to work internationally. Actually, from the outset, because one of my co-founders is Indian, we actually have been as active in India as we have been in Denmark. And that has sort of opened our eyes to other markets than Denmark and Northern Europe, which would be sort of the, the staples of a company like ours. And then we've actually had a primary focus on India for the time being, but also we've done a lot of market development in places like Vietnam, Eastern Africa, South Africa, those parts of the world. So we have these solutions that essentially are the biggest version of whatever they came up with at the Technical University of Denmark that still fits in a container. That's kind of our basic idea because you want to be able to deploy these things very, very quickly. And also if something goes south, then you can redeploy them. You can make use of these assets elsewhere. This idea of creating a solution that can be deployed in different contexts is really key to the MASHMAKES approach and their philosophy. Yes, and we'll get into that in a minute. But for now, let's just remind ourselves of some of the characteristics of the traditional approach to biochar, if we can call it that. I'd say modern tradition. Well, listeners might remember from our early episode on biochar that humans have been charring organic matter and burying it in their soils for thousands of years. Shout out to indigenous creators of Terra Preta. Well, quite. The modern iteration of that long-standing tradition that we want to talk about, i.e. the production of biochar, has often been dependent on local context for necessary resources and enterprises. And to be honest, I imagine this is also true for the Terra Preta operations thousands of years ago. Yes, I don't think they were outsourcing any of their charring needs back in the day. 
We don't want to generalize too much, and Jacob also pointed out that the focus of MASH makes does reflect wider industry trends. But there has been a tendency for biochar projects to be very site-specific, addressing the needs of individual communities or local areas. The standard MO is very sort of local. It's very context-specific. So, you know, the type of idea that, okay, we're setting up here because there's this farmer that built this partnership with this sawmill owner, or there's this residue coming from a local sugar mill or whatever, and this community can benefit in this and that way. And because of that, we have now this project that has been created from that. Jacob noted something else about this local focus on the communication side. There's a common practice of doing wonderful storytelling about individual projects. You might not be aware of this particularly in the biochar world, but I'm sure you can imagine this kind of thing. All kinds of advertisers do it all the time. Look, here's Jenny. She's one of our dairy farmers. She has the best laugh in the world. Look at her dancing around her field, laughing with all her cows. Jenny and her cows have a great life. Buy our butter. Or whatever, you know. Where can I buy Jenny's butter? (laughs) Have I reeled you in with that storytelling already? You have, yeah. Jenny's butter sounds irresistible. Well, thank you, Tom. In order to be as compelling as possible to investors, buyers, the public and co-hosts of any of your podcasts, these narratives often tie into a specific location or local community to showcase one single project with that particular context. I mean, it's easy to see why this practice of local focus has emerged. It embodies a recognition of the limits of blanket solutions and the realities of the -the on-the-ground impacts that these projects can have. And it makes sense in some practical ways too. For example, bespoke individual solutions reduce infrastructure needs that disperse networks of projects rely on. Yeah, totally get that. And I think this is particularly the case for biochar. We've talked in the past about all the co-benefits of biochar. The benefits for the local community can be substantial. We've also noted how biochar is easy to deliver at small scale, using any resources on offer at a particular location. Totally. And I, Emily, am still working on getting my little biochar bakery in my backyard, just like we jumped up in season one. So watch this space. I wait with bated breath, Tom. It's very exciting. Maybe Jenny and her butter business could pair up with my biochar bakery. Okay, only if I can come and visit the cows. Agreed. Deal. Anyway, having your own biochar bakery in your backyard feels much more feasible than a DAC plant on your property. So in a way, biochar feels perfectly fit for small-scale local production that's tailored to that particular locality. So we're telling nice stories about Jenny and her cows and Tom and his bakery. (laughs) We're implementing projects that work on a local level with benefits for local communities. What's the problem here? Well, all of this is great, but there are some risks to hyper-localised approaches. For starters, these kinds of projects may be innately dependent on local conditions and existing local infrastructure. This makes them vulnerable to external factors and changes. Let me give you an example. Let me paint you a picture. I might decide to open up my little biochar bakery in some specific rural community, and my choice might be prompted by the abundance of agricultural waste in that area. Perfect. That's just what I need to make my biochar, so it sounds like an ideal spot for it. I set up my biochar bakery and all goes well for a few years, until... Let's say the region where I'm established suffers a drought or some flooding or some other kind of unpredictable climate shift. So those crops that were crucial for my biochar production haven't been harvested this year. 
In the meantime, market dynamics change, prices fluctuate, and the cost of agricultural waste suddenly soars. It's not looking so good for my little buy char bakery anymore. Everything that once seemed like a perfect match is now completely unviable. So sorry you've had to go through that, Tom. Devastating news. Yeah. And I can imagine similar problems with the storytelling example. If your marketing focuses entirely on the specificities of one project, that is a strong narrative commitment. There might not be much wiggle room should any changes arise. I mean, what if My Little Biochar Bakery is actually a huge success and suddenly it isn't so little anymore? Ah, well, thinking about how that traditional biochar model tends to work now, it can be tricky to duplicate a project, no matter how successful it is, if it's been designed to specifically fit one local context. Knowledge may not be easily transferable from one project to the next, systems may have to be redesigned, which can take a lot of time and resources. Ultimately, the success of one project is not systematically integrated into the planning and execution of the next. Yeah, this feels like the kicker for me. It just doesn't feel efficient. There is the potential for a lot of duplicated efforts with this model. And it's going to be a real challenge if our goal is scaling up. So, what's MashMakes doing differently then? Well, MashMakes have identified scaling potential as a cornerstone of their work. And as a result, they're focused on not just creating a solution for a local context, but one that they believe can be replicated. In many ways, we conduct ourselves in the same way. We also build it from the context, but we make absolutely certain that whatever we're building on this location is something that can be ported, that can be replicated in other locations. And then, again, having this platform that allows us to diversify on different commodities Another thing that's clearly different from some of the competing technologies or alternative solutions is that we also can boost revenue quite dramatically by also being able to produce energy products like biofuels. Right? So these are some of the things. And because all of these things are you know, made according to international commodities, we don't also have to seek out a local market some niche market that might just be able to handle this weird-ass product that is coming from our process. Rather, what we can do is we can say, well, okay, well, if we set up here, we will bring a, an international market for your products to that site so that you know there's offtake from it. Again, that diversity of outputs gives them some flexibility here. Shifting away from heavy reliance on a local context and creating products for which there's an international market but it's also about creating a process that you don't have to redesign every time when you set up in a new location. Yeah, totally. It's worth reflecting for a moment on how there are many different ways of producing biochar, because although we've talked about biochar before, there are of course many different companies offering vastly different approaches to the whole process. There are different inputs in terms of the types of biomass you're using. There are different outputs in terms of the products you're getting at the end of the process and what you can do with them. And there are, of course, different ways to make the biochar itself. Mm. And technology that works for one type of input or creates one type of output can't always be applied to another. If you've built a facility specifically for a location where there's an excess of one type of agricultural residue, you can't just simply replicate that if you're expanding somewhere with completely different raw materials or, or a completely different climate. Totally. Now, obviously, if mashmakes are going to expand into different types of geographies and local contexts, they're not simply going to be able to do the same thing everywhere. Rather, they're thinking about reducing the individual accommodations they have to make each time they expand. 
we don't believe that we will be developing a single model that'll bring us to gigaton scale, right? Rather, it's still eventually going to be a patchwork of different models. I'm just trying to make the patches as big as possible, mm. right? So that we have, you know, we are, we're going to cover as many bases as possible with the biggest possible patches in that quilt, right? That's really the idea. Because one thing that we need to become very, very good at, and that we're already quite good at in MASH, is how we're going to develop the next model that'll scale to hundreds of sites. That's really the thing that'll become a strategic impetus in, uh, in the coming years for us. I loved hearing about the patchwork model. You know, as I was trying to wrap my head around this, I got into a bit of an analogy adventure with Jacob, because like, when is that not fun? And it was reflecting on how this whole picture to me reminds me of like a freelance or portfolio career. If you're like me, you're probably a freelancer because you recognize that you don't want to do just one thing all the time or be reliant on one particular income stream. But you also can't have a hundred different micro projects that are all running differently. Or you just like completely lose your mind and probably struggle to stay afloat. So you have to find that balance. Doing work that you can scale, developing a few different models that you can use multiple times to improve your efficiency and build your skill set. It's just efficient that way, you know? That analogy really helped the whole concept resonate with me. Sounds very complicated. Nonetheless, it's good to learn a little bit more about your career up until now, as well as the MASHMAKE's approach to biochar production. Yes, it's all a work in progress. And of course, this focus on replicability isn't just about technology. It's also about everything else that goes into making their business operate. In some ways, you could say that our approach is a slightly boring one. Because in some ways, we don't get to tell the stories of this particular machine we set up in this particular village, and it had this and this effect. The fact of the matter is that the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we execute our business has exactly all of those um, effects. But we kind of go with what you could call a one-size-fits-all approach. And we do this because we think that for this to really scale, for this technology platform to really scale, you absolutely have to think in terms of assembly line products, but also not just assembly line products, technologies, but also assembly line, this is going to sound really boring, but like legal structures, like so that we don't have five different machines and five different legal structures around ownership and local participation, blah, blah, blah. We want to have a model that can be replicated many, many, many times that is Pretty much the same, of course, taking into account whatever local subtleties we want to encompass. So yeah, in that way, everything at all levels of mesh makes is kind of like an assembly line product. It's something that can be produced in large volumes. But that is not to say that you know we don't have a focus on the impact. It is just that we believe we can have, in absolute terms, a heck of a lot more impact by deploying many, many, many instances of our model as opposed to single instances. Something that really struck me about talking to Jacob is that yes, this makes sense in many ways from a business perspective. Even with the most basic understanding of business, you can understand that. But it also makes sense from an impact perspective, as he just highlighted. And if we've learned nothing else this season, it should be that CDR's primary purpose should be impact. Yeah, by creating the opportunity to grow this solution faster and bigger, you're contributing to industry scale-up and possibly identifying opportunities that you might not spot if you were only thinking at that hyper-local level. Another thing that Jacob talked about was where biochar can have the most impact. We all know that biochar works as a carbon removal strategy, 
But of course, if applied to the agricultural space, it can also have seriously impressive impacts on agricultural productivity, for example. Jacob talked about how this is especially the case for arid or drought-prone land. So when you're thinking about deploying solutions where they have the most impact, this is also going to be a key part of the equation. Yeah, he shared some pretty impressive stats that they've had through on drought resilience. Recently, we had these amazing results for soybean. It was actually the second season on a plot that had been treated with biochar in the first season. And this was under a drought. We saw that the reference plot, so the one without biochar, had a reduction in yield of something like 65%. I don't have the exact figure. And the plot that was actually treated with our biochar had a drop of only, I think, 26 or 27%. And that's, for me, that's like, that'll make it or break it for that farmer. On the subject of impact, something I was really keen to understand is where that balance lies between focusing on the local and the global. Because MASH makes recognise that this isn't an all-or-nothing situation. So the way that we think of it is, let's just take one simple quantitative metric, something like doing an LCA to find the, uh, the GHG, the greenhouse gas footprint of some solution that we could deploy in India. Okay, so we have three different concepts that we could pursue. One is that, you know, it disqualified immediately because it's not particularly attractive. One has, let's say, 100% impact. Like it's the one that if you look at that case, it's the one to go with. It just is very, very tailored. It works there. And we're not really seeing that that particular one will replicate very well. And then there might be another one that's, you know, index 90 or index 80 or whatever, right? Lower but that we're seeing we can replicate a lot of times. That's really how we approach it. And that is not a story where we're not talking about the local impact. In fact, that is absolutely critical. We want to be the company in the world that is most serious about measuring our impact. We have a colleague, Ross Allen, who is our chief impact officer. That's his job. That's his job to make sure that we're ahead of the curve on understanding every conceivable aspect of that. But we do take a step back And we have to also help our customers understand that that step back is needed to reach the wider sort of potential of of these types of things. So, yeah, both stories are necessary, but we're lacking in the second part of that story. This point about not sacrificing local impact is really key. I think I started to hear phrases like one size fits all and production line and maybe got a bit nervous initially that we were going to be talking about disregarding local realities entirely. But Jacob paints a picture of sustainable development without an us and them mentality that also addresses the global goals we all know we need to reach. Yeah. And something I think that we were both quite excited about was the focus on that local participation and ownership piece that the company is building into their model. It's actually key to MASHMAKES' ambition, and as Jacob said, entirely consistent with this idea of creating a model that's highly scalable. What would you say to somebody who might accuse this model of using resources of the global south to benefit maybe European agenda which is like far too similar to reflections of past colonial issues. Well, I suppose the first point to be made there is that in the coming plants, there will be Indian owners. Then you could argue, okay, well, are we then just funneling money in the direction of deep-pocketed Indian investors? And that's not necessarily a big improvement compared to what you were suggesting there, Emily. But we also try very hard to make sure that there is local participation. 
So let's say, take the biochar model, for instance. One obvious thing that we will be probing in the coming time is the proactive use of biochar so that these landless farmers that are prolific, like they're all over the place in, in India, that we actually come up with programs so we can help them actually improve their soils despite them not actually being able to make that investment so that we are trying to use our products proactively to actually improve on their livelihoods. So that hopefully will enable us to protect these guys against droughts in the future and that type of thing. There's even like the idea that we are shuffling around right now of just having some simple profit sharing schemes mm. that could also be a, a very meaningful thing going forward. At the end of the day, if it doesn't add up for the local population and if there isn't you know, an equitable model there, then it's just not going to function. So I don't think that that is you know, the whole idea of scaling, the whole idea of doing something that replicates and that can be done at a very, very large level. That would also involve having an equitable model that works with the local community. I think that's a prerequisite, in fact. So much of this just feels like common sense when I'm sticking my scaling goggles on. Where did you get them, Tom? I want a pair. I'll send one in the post. Thanks, Anne. But one reason we were particularly keen to speak to Mashmakes is that they've gone some way to formalising this philosophy into a thing they call gigaton thinking. I'll let Jacob explain. Gigaton thinking is essentially the basic notion that there are certain things, certain decisions we can make today about our business, certain decisions we can make about our technological platform, our legal structures, all of those things that will help us scale into the gigaton range. Conversely, you could say that there are also certain things we can be doing today that will make it difficult for us to scale into the gigaton range. And it seems like a somewhat banal sort of heuristic to have in mind, but it actually really does help. So, for instance, now when I'm contacted by someone who wants to do this and say, like, this is amazing. But I then my immediate follow up question is, OK, but can you say anything about the general resource availability in that area of the world? Because I'd love to develop this, but I need to know that I can find my way to, let's say, 100 sites being operational in that area, because otherwise I'm actually neglecting. The other cases that I know of already where, for instance, I use sugarcane bagasse in Kenya, and that'll get me to a couple of hundred sites, right? Or I use bamboo residues in the uh, north of Kolkata that'll bring me to, uh, you know, 500 sites or this and that, right? So suddenly I have a frame of reference that allows me to say, well, the reason why this is this great idea is not something that we will pursue is because we are really trying to align ourselves with this idea that we need to think in gigatons. And it simply doesn't meet that criterion. Others, absolutely, it would make sense for them. But for, for us, that's at the core of what we do. Having a set of criteria or priorities is key for any business, particularly those at a relatively early stage like MASH makes with big dreams for scaling. We've talked about the attractions of those traditional site-specific approaches, and there'll always be a place for those. But it's clear that gigaton thinking really embeds this idea of global impact from the outset. And that feels really appropriate when you're dealing with a solution to a global problem that you need to grow exponentially. Yes, and I think this really got our imaginations running. What do you need to bear in mind when applying this approach? What lessons can be distilled from MASH makes that may have broader application? We asked Jacob to outline the key tenets. I think of them as works in progress, but these are all of them coupled to observations and sort of specific instances that we've had over the years in MASH. And we do find them quite useful as a point of departure for doing gigaton thinking. 
So the first one is really about thinking about how whatever you're doing will scale in terms of overheads and unit economics. So, for instance, these days in MASH, we're talking a lot about how we can have financial reporting, performance reporting from sites in a manner that doesn't require a lot of manual labor. So that, let's say, if we make 100 machines or 100 sites, we don't have 100 times as much overhead that we have to contend with. So that really economies of scale, it's a sort of a, a rephrasing of that. And then another one that's really important is this basic idea of just saying, okay, this might be the optimal solution for this particular village, this particular location, but because of the fact that it does not port, it does not replicate to other sites, it might actually not be that good an idea, at least as seen from a gigaton thinking perspective. Rather, what we want is something that has as much impact as possible locally that will replicate as many times as possible. And that almost sort of brings you to the next one, that we have to be serious about quantifying the impact. And impact for us is not just like GHG, greenhouse gases, but it's also at least trying to have a stab in the coming time at biodiversity, but certainly also the social impact that we have when we're setting this up. All of these things need to be measured to the extent that it's possible, quantified to the extent that it's possible. And then, of course, we're not neglecting the value of qualitative measures as well. But you have to be serious about describing and measuring these things. Okay, let's pause there because there's a lot in here. The point about economies of scale is perhaps an obvious one, but it does get forgotten. You know, I think so much time in the CDR world at the moment is spent on developing innovative approaches, proving concepts, and so on. As it should be, that's all vital. But MASH makes have their tech. They know they can get good results from it. And so now they're thinking about how they can feasibly and affordably create a model that delivers at volume. I think we sometimes forget the importance of this because we're still at such an early stage in the industry. Most CDR companies are only working across a single site or a handful of sites, if they're operational at all. But over the coming decade, this is going to become more and more important. I completely agree. And Jacob's other points really help contextualise this zoomed out approach, especially when it comes to impact. In practice, his second tenet around replicability is a shift towards longer-term thinking, potentially foregoing short-term gains for the longer-term growth potential. And being able to replicate while ensuring you're still getting impact and quantifying it is a really microcosmic example of what the whole industry needs to be doing over the coming years if we're going to hit that gigaton scale. Agreed. Okay, let's hear the rest of Jacob's tenets. Another one is what we call universality, that the idea that you have really has to work in as many places as possible. For instance, don't make a concept that only works for one investor. Make a concept that works for the investor market as a whole and understand what actually drives that market and how things are done. The same goes for, let's say, the legal side of things. Let's not make something that is super optimized for some obscure local legislation, but something that will work, let's say, across India or even across regions. Another thing that I find extremely exciting and that I really see in our case biochar as being a part of is the idea of a bad word these days would be to call it virality, but maybe another slightly more agreeable term would be self-perpetuation. The fact that when we set up a site, we really have to think about how that site can pave the way for future sites. It could be because the local population is so happy about us having set it up that they now become ambassadors or advocates for others to set it up. That's an example. Another more technical version of that is that 
The biochar is actually something you can use in arid lands to create new biomass systems. Well, what do we need to scale our platform? Well, we need biomass residues, and each of those biomass systems will have a main output that could be produced for the benefit of local populations. It will also have a residual output. Well, that residual output could be the basis for our new machines, new sites. And then the last one that's sort of been added a bit more recently is really avoiding navel-gazing. The fact that the obvious solution, the obvious dots that ought to be connected are not necessarily placed in the same zip code as yourself. It might be that you have a technology that has more potential in other parts of the world than the one that you're currently in. It might be that there are funders in other parts of the world who are more interested in it. This can be done on many, many different levels, but really getting out of your comfort zone and trying to go from your immediately obvious plan to a plan that has more impact. Again, lots of food for thought here, in particular virality. We touched on it a little earlier, but biochar is one solution that can inherently lend itself to this idea of self-perpetuation. By improving the quality of soils, biochar can actually pave the way for future sites. If the right lands are targeted, you can get more biomass, ultimately leading to more residues for biochar production. It's a pretty nifty system. Nifty indeed. And Jacob points out how you can go beyond this. For instance, it might be about proving the concept to investors or building alliances with local advocates. However you approach it, this idea of building self-perpetuation into projects is a clever way of making that path towards scale a little easier to navigate. Jacob clearly sees the whole world as full of potential in recognising that the best investor or the best solution might not be the one right in front of him. That feels like a really empowering way to engage with the world, particularly when working on a global problem like this one. Jacob has a lot of great ideas, and he was really humble when we asked him to think about the broader application of gigaton thinking. Mm. But it's clear that there is immense value here for those also thinking big about CDR more broadly. I used to do research within what you can call sort of innovation methods. And one of the things that I really disliked about that space is, you know, in many cases, there's a general lack of, let's call it, uh, intellectual honesty. <laughs> like people are assuming that it's a one size fits all and this just works everywhere, right? Where if you really dig down, it's like, that doesn't work there, doesn't work there. It certainly didn't work in many phases of mesh makes development, right? So I feel the same way about this gigaton thinking idea. It is appropriate, I would say, certainly for MASH. That's kind of why we came up with it, right? But I hesitate to make too many statements about the applicability of the idea beyond that. Although I do think that there are certainly some areas, some organizations, people who could benefit from this type of thinking. So, for instance, if you take a, a well-established company, they've been in a certain business for 50 or 100 years. On earth, are they going to suddenly shift their business to in a manner that will allow them to suddenly have a gigaton impact? It just doesn't really make sense, does it, right? And there's also, of course, a need for companies that actually do the more tailored work for, for the specific instances, right? Absolutely, it is imperative. And I would also even go so far as to say that in earlier stages of MASH's development, absolutely, it wouldn't make sense. We didn't have a choice. We were driven by what was the next project that we could get funding for, right? Like, it wasn't at all a strategic thing. So we are at a stage now where we can take a step back and say, okay, well, how do we want to conduct ourselves now? And that's, that's what we're doing. But I don't think we had that privilege earlier on. So I think that that is a very important thing to note here. Throwing it back to our 2023 year in review episode, 
Mm. Biochar is the CDR method that's furthest along in terms of the commercialization and the delivery of the carbon removal, right? Yes. So it does make sense for gigaton thinking to be focused on biochar in this first instance. But I really don't think these tenets are exclusive to biochar. I think that they have so much applicability across every CDR method. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of more like a way of thinking about how we scale up than it is particularly like, this is how we make a lot of biochar. Even like, Mm. this is how we make a lot of CDR. You know, I think it could be even applicable outside of this industry to a certain extent. Yeah, I for one am pretty excited and very keen to kind of track the progress of these tenets as they mature alongside the industry. Yeah, nice. I must say, Timothy, I have been on a bit of a journey with this one. Pray tell. As I mentioned, I was a bit worried we were just going to be moving back towards blanket solutions and particularly like blanket solutions for people in the global south imposed by people from the global north. But what I think I'm recognising is we need to scale this. And so in that, I see like a real need to balance the two things of holding those important local aspects and empowering those parts of it, whilst also thinking about that global scale and global impact that this kind of technology can, we know it can have that. So really balancing those two in order to allow biochar and cdr and who knows what other technology to like fulfill its greatest potential yeah reflecting back on our conversation with jacob and mash makes it reminded me of some conversations i've had in the past where people have said that it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to the atmosphere where the co2 is particularly emitted nor does it particularly matter where that co2 is removed from from an atmospheric perspective However, it does matter to us. It matters to human society and also beyond the human world, you know, looking from a biodiversity perspective, you know, where we build these projects. Maybe that's why the balance feels so important, because if we drop one or the other, then some of the co-benefits of these CDR solutions are lost, right? If you drop the focus on how things can work in a local context, then you've lost the co-benefits of like supporting local communities and even supporting local soil health and all those things right they can just so easily be like pushed by the wayside if the only thing you focus on is getting as much carbon out of the atmosphere as possible but similarly if you don't focus on scaling up the carbon removal stuff then you lose that benefit so the fact that there are so many co-benefits calls us to look at this balance more delicately i think scaling up huh tricky stuff who'd do it scaling up who'd bother so five episodes all about scaling up it's a big topic by its very nature i feel like we'll be coming back to this somewhere down the line i feel as though it's now entrenched in our thinking we're gonna be away from your ear holes now for a little while so like enjoy enjoy the last of us right now because we're gonna be away for a little while but we look forward to being back with you in the not too distant future we cannot wait do stay in touch lovely listeners And if there's anything you think we should cover in future episodes, or if you've got stories you want to tell, drop us a message. We promise we don't bite. Reach out across the podosphere. Until next time. See you soon. See ya. Big thank you to everyone who makes this show possible. Our researcher and fact checker, Henry Irvine. Our graphic designer, Reke Campbell. Our composer, Sam Carter. Our producer, Ben Weaver-Hinks. 
and our executive producer, Sam Floyd. I've been Emily Swaddle. And I've been Tom Praviti. Thank you so much for listening. If we could ask you to do two favours, please hit that subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening and give us a rating. It really helps. And if you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, please do us this favour and share it with a friend or a colleague. You can find us online at thecarbonremovalshow.com. We're on LinkedIn as The Carbon Removal Show and we're on Twitter or X as Restored CC. See you next time.